Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast that believes deeply in otherwise. That things don't have to be like this, they could be like that. And indeed they need to be like that. And wow, wouldn't it be so wonderful if they were like that? And that perhaps if we started living today as though it already was like that and used every storytelling bone in our bodies to talk about that in such a way that it was what people longed for, then we might just bring it about. As the great Martin Luther King put it, any movement, any culture will fail if it cannot paint a picture of a world that people will want to go to. I must just at this point mention that this podcast is able to exist and flourish and host the kind of wonderful discussions you're about to hear because of those wonderful folks who become its patrons over at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. If you listen to this episode and you like it, do consider supporting it. You get new episodes two weeks before everyone else and bonus things too just for you, as well as that delicious inner glow that comes from knowing that you're paying good attention to the well-being of your own and other people's imaginations. And so to today's episode. Today we're talking about reading, more specifically the reading of books and its decline in our culture. The digital fog we all live in as we bounce from platform to platform, each designed not to nurture and protect our love for reading or our attention spans, but rather to grab and hold that attention for as long as possible whilst also mining our data and trying to sell us things we don't need, is wreaking havoc on our ability to read. I have books on my shelves that in my teens I loved and swam in. The universes that they reveal to me feel almost as real as my own lived experience, but which now I struggle to get more than a few pages into. I read Anna Karenina once. I couldn't do it now. After just a few pages, my depleted attention span starts to cry for novelty, dopamine, something that just demands less attention. Does this matter? What happens when, as one of our guests puts it, we experience in our times the loss of depth, a loss, that is, of the very paradigm of depth? Are we simply in a transition period from one technology to another, in the same way we might have moved from clay tablets to vellum or vinyl to CDs, and I'm happy to say back again? Or is something deeper at work here? All of which leads us to today's question. What if we read more books? I'm joined by two amazing guests to explore this with me. Marianne Wolfe is a scholar, a teacher and an advocate for children and literacy around the world. She's the director of the newly created Centre for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners and Social Justice at UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Previously, she was the John DiBaggio Professor of Citizenship and Public Service and director of the Centre for Reading and Language Research in the Elliot Pearson Department of Child Study and Human Development at Tufts University. She's the author of Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, Dyslexia Fluency and the Brain Tales of Literacy for the 21st Century and most recently of the brilliant Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, which I highly recommend. And Sven Burkett describes himself as an essayist, a teacher of writing and the editor of a literary journal at Boston University called Agony. 
He started out as a book reviewer, which led him into becoming a writer of essays and memoirs. In 1994, he wrote the Gutenberg Elegies, which explored the demise of reading and the rise of digital culture. It's a phenomenal book. Then in 2015, he wrote Changing the Subject, an update on his relationship with digital media and a powerful cry to the importance of attention and imagination in a time where both appear to be waning. More recently, he's become, as he put it, kind of obsessed, both in a very literal and get-out-and-do-it way, but also thinking about it by taking photographs with his phone. As he puts it, it's become a little fixation of some sort that has me thinking a lot about how we take in the world and what we keep and what serves us and what is artistic and what isn't. He lives in Arlington, Massachusetts. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, for, for arranging this. So... I'd like to start by inviting you both to do an exercise that we always start this podcast with. So my invitation is for you to both close your eyes and get comfortable and to take a breath. And do join us in this if you're listening. I'd like you to imagine that thanks to the fact that this podcast has incredibly mastered the art of time travel, you've left 2021 and are now travelling forwards through time. 2022, 2023, 2024, the years pass by and it feels like the wind in your face. 2025, 26, 27, these years you pass through turned out to be a time of incredible social change and transformation. Cascades of change unimaginable in 2021 began to rapidly manifest and society changed profoundly, economically, culturally, ecologically, 2028, 2029, and the 2030 that you emerge into in many ways looks like the 2021 you left behind, but it's also profoundly changed. It's now far more just, equal, fair, beautiful, diverse, a connected world, one that is radically low carbon and inclusive. It's been a transition which felt like living through a revolution of the imagination. And central to that has been the reclaiming of our attention span and a massive upsurge in reading books. Books are everywhere, being shared, passed around, discussed, debated, reflected upon. The reading renaissance has been central to that revolution. I wonder if you might take us on a walk through that future. What would it be like? What would it look like, feel like, sound like, smell like to live in such a future? Can you bring it alive for us? How would it be different from today? Uh, Marianne? Well, I think I am going to speak from two different, if you will, perspectives. The one perspective is as a cognitive neuroscientist who looks at this world and sees that we have used the best of our knowledge about how the brain has differences when it reads in different genres, when it reads in different mediums, and has rediscovered the extraordinary power that is liberated when we read books. So as a cognitive neuroscientist, I would be gasping with pleasure and delight, but I would also be looking at the children and I would be looking at different ages, how each each developmental aspect of humanity was looking at books in a different way. And I would be thinking of Walter Ong because he had once said that it's not about either or when we think about mediums, but what happens when humanity is steeped in both? So a question that I would be looking at to answer is, what are the mediums that all these books are? And I would see 
to my pleasure, this is my perspective, that there would be so many more books, but that there would be other mediums available in which there was a complementarity. But then I would see something that would be most exciting to me. And I would see that there were places all around these environments where people were silent, that they were that they were quiet, that there was more of a sense of stillness that was possessed by each of the people who were reading, that they had rediscovered what I believe that Sven and I have both hoped in our work to preserve. They had rediscovered that within them is a sanctuary, a place of stillness. Actually, Dag Hammarskjöld talked about in, in the UN reading room, which is itself a place of stillness, that he wanted to preserve this stillness within each of us. Well, that's what Pascal said too, that half of the world's problems could be resolved if we discovered how to be quiet for 30 minutes by ourselves in a chair. And Pasteur said that, Intuition, thought, chance comes to the prepared mind. Well, all of those thoughts would be known and would be lived out and be acted upon by people who had found within them as a child where that space was and had been developing it all the way through adulthood and that our, our, our citizens, our people who are elderly, are looked upon as those who have read the most books and they would be discovering. Um, um, I, I think of Master Eichhardt when he said, every day I'm younger. Well, in the sense that that sanctuary is a place where the the elan, the, the, the very zest of life that is within the capacity of a person when they read to leave themselves and enter all these other lives all of that would be coming to life as I look at all these people in parks and nature and places. And there would be places of stillness around all our cultural institutions and places in schools so that the, if you will, um, I think it was Walter Benjamin who was writing about Kafka and said, we don't know if he himself believed in God, but that he possessed something that is the natural prayer of the soul, and that is attentiveness. And so that's what I would be seeing across all of these people in all their different ages. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you. Sven, how is 2030 looking to you? Yes, I find it very interesting that um, reading minds often uh, think along similar channels. I was determined to uh, open my vision with myself sitting in a room staring at the poster on the wall, which would be the quote from Pascal about the problems of the world going away if people could only learn to sit quietly in their rooms. I thought, well, thinking about this and putting myself into 2030 toward a kind of um, ideal way of things, I realized that what I was essentially doing was I was projecting my own fantasies and ideals onto the world in a kind of dictatorial fashion. Because uh, all of the virtues and values that Marianne just cited so eloquently, um, 
I mean, they're all part of the mix that uh, I would love to inhabit and that I think about and I think are the, uh, in many ways, the things that will save the deeper aspects of our species. So in 2030, one of the things I would be doing would be marveling as I look back at um, the moment in 2021 when it miraculously came clear to um, the culture at large that uh, this couldn't go on. Um, it almost have to be a kind of rapturous event and recognition because we are so deep into uh, the culture, of the, uh, the virtual culture and the internet culture and so on. But with this great sweeping collective realization, it was pretty much universally acknowledged that we would, in order to move forward, we would have to start moving backward. And by that, I mean, it's like quitting smoking, not quitting the internet outright, but the recognition being that the world that we want to reach in terms of subjective being and happiness very much depends on a gradual and increasing um, reduction of that which we have been anxiously caught up in for several decades now, and that that would uh, the two would be going hand in hand as the one, you know, the virtual digital was made by various edicts to wane, the other would begin to flourish complementarily. And with that, I mean, what the world I would look at with, a, with great favor would be a world in which, again, the word attention, attention reclaimed its rightful place in the, uh, human spectrum um, in which time reassembled itself, time which has been by virtue of our technologies so shattered to the point where, as you say, you couldn't read more than a few pages of Anna Karenina now. Well, attention and time are intimately bound, I think, and it would be like putting a broken vase back together, creating the coherence of sustained time and the word I like to use and which comes up in my thinking about reading a lot is the word duration which is um, the experience of time which is not aware of the outward passage of time we're not looking at our clocks we're not watching the digits change we are in a different state it's more contemplative it's more inward it's more you know attentive and I think, you know, based on my own experience and value system, it's a happier place. And I think it also affords, though um, this part is a little bit hard to picture, but I believe it would follow that human interaction would also reassemble itself in ways that in a sense you'd say, well, those are older ways. But in this projection, there are also newer ways. It would be rediscovering various things lost. We, uh, back before the uh, COVID episode or, you know, era, my wife and I would, there's a place that we go to in Italy. It's actually a very small hill town, and it really is literally a, a village of about 40 houses. It's on top of a, a mountain. And, you know, if we're lucky, we've been able once a year or so to get two weeks to be there. 
And if I invoke a world that I'd like to return to, it is one where, <laughs> this sound really idealized, but you know, when I wake up there, I hear chickens far down below and I hear bells far across the valley, which is still a culture that uses the bell. And those two things right off, even as I'm opening my eyes, um, create a kind of serenity that I realize is very hard to come by in the life that I live and in many ways am forced to live by virtue of our habits, technologies, and the structures that we've built up. I'd love to start by hearing from you both about where you think we are in 2021 in relation to this question of the decline of attention spans and the decline of reading. What's the state of health of reading in 2021, would you say? Uh, Marianne? It's um, a question with multiple dimensions to it. But before I move into it, I have to remember that Sven, in his early Gutberg elegies, wrote about something which, which, I, which is like a bridge between that question and now. It's, it's a curious one because it helps me give you my response, which is I have been working on deep reading. What does deep reading mean? And I am approaching it from the standpoint of what the brain does when it has enough time to move beyond the very basics of of decoding, you know, putting the alphabetic principle into into action in the brain, you know, putting all those things together. But if there is enough time deployed by the reader, it moves into a whole panoply of beautiful interactive processes that require attention by the reader to be activated. So if the reader is just decoding, skimming, browsing, as is the norm in 2021, the deployment of these deep reading processes that combine background knowledge, inference, deduction, very importantly, perspective taking, leaving the self taking on the perspective, whether it's the perspective of another person's thought and feelings or the perspective of an alternative or similar view in science or a newspaper. All of that is taking place as preparatory to its summation in critical analysis. So two very important processes in this deep reading are the empathy that is generated through perspective taking and the ability to truly discern truth or evaluate it in critical analysis. Those take time. And the reason why I'm connecting it to the, back, the last question in Sven's response is that he wrote about deep time. I wrote without remembering what Sven said. I wrote about deep reading, not realizing that he had preceded me. In fact, I thought I had invented the term and even told Nicholas Carr that was the term. And then Nicholas used it in his book, The Shallows. But it wasn't. It, it really emerged not consciously, Sven, 
But unconsciously, you helped me think about deep reading because of your version of deep time, which returns us to the present question of 2021. We have lost our access to whether we call it deep time or deep reading because so much of our culture is inundating us, bombarding us with so much information that by defense and by evolutionary reflex, we move from stimulus to stimulus. Novel stimulus is part of our evolutionary history. It helps us not miss a poisonous creature or a predator is about to pounce on us. So anything novel captures our attention. Well, in 2021, that is the absolute enemy of attention as we want to think about it as preparatory to the deep reading processes that lead us to be able to be empathic, critical, analytic thinkers. I'm going to add one extra piece, and, and I actually shouldn't add this one extra piece because I'm taxing the, the seven plus or minus two rule about how many things you say at once, but I'm going to do it anyway because anyone who's listening to this has that kind of mind anyway. So at the end of all these processes that I'm calling deep reading is the possibility for what I call the leap, and that's it's it's actually the leap into the contemplative, the reflective. And that's where time, as Finn was saying, stands still. We, we are immersed. We're there. And Proust said that at the heart of reading is this moment in which we leave the wisdom of the author behind to discover our own. Well, That is what I most worry about from a cognitive, an intellectual, a spiritual, philosophical level about what's happening today. We are becoming such skimmers that we are not deploying sufficient time in milliseconds to enter and activate and integrate all of those deep reading processes. Now, the data, that's a different perspective, are altogether supportive of that. Whether we look at eye movement research, we see that the average adult is doing an F or a Z pattern when they read. Therefore, word spotting, browsing, etc. If we look at consumption by children, by adolescents, we see that though they are, quote unquote, reading more on screen, they are actually picking up books, magazines, etc. I think the percentage is in something between 12 and 14 percent as opposed to 60 percent just a decade or two ago about what the average consumption was of, of books and things that really would inspire immersion. So we have differences behaviorally and ultimately, ultimately, and this is the hardest thing I'm going to say and then I'm going to stop, Ultimately, we also have data showing that our young adults, when they're reading the same material on the screen or in a book or printed form, have differences in their ability to comprehend what that story or that material is. So we have data, and then we have our understanding 
of our own selves, which you, Rob, you described when you talked about Anna Karenina and I described in my book when I tried to return to Magister Ludi or Glasspeak game. We have all changed at every developmental level. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Sven? Yes, I'll uh, step in by saying first that some of what I'm going to say will dovetail um, quite precisely with what Marianne was saying a little earlier in the opening part of her response. So um, <clears throat> I'll bring in just possibly a slightly different terminology if I'm looking at where we are and what's the outlook, both about reading, but also the values that reading essentially represents. I would say if there's anything central, when I start or return to thinking about this, I have to reactivate a, an old and by now suspect word, which is the word soul. I mean it in a somewhat secular way, but I mean it as a kind of our inwardness taken completely, who we are in a subjective sense. I guess it's the project of subjective meaning, which I feel has always driven me forward. That's been the engine of my life, um, which is very likely why I took to books as early as I did, because I discovered they were a special access to inwardness. Um, not that the inwardness wasn't there, but a book, every time every different book would show that there was another window or a little door um, to go through. Um, and these were sort of inward occupations and they had to do with trying always to understand the perennial question that we don't ask much anymore is like, you know, what is, uh, what's the meaning, what's the purpose of uh, our being here? So um, when I look at the whole larger picture of reading culture and culture at large and where the world seems to be going in these ways, it's my central fear and that's the bone that I chew on most is inwardness. I feel like inwardness simply cannot coexist with incorporated reflexes that you know, we have based on the amount of time we spend interacting with a system that requires certain kinds of actions, procedures, and ways of thinking and moving and responding. I, and that was the thing I remember, that was the opening clue of uh, Nicholas Carr's <clears throat> book. He began also with the recognition it's actually his article is Google making us stupid, which then became the basis for the book. But he just discovered now, I don't know how many years ago we're talking, but that someone who had always been a reader himself um, was sort of forced to spend a great deal of the day interacting digitally. And still at the end of the day, um, believed he could kind of, turn that off and go back to his um, familiar and sort of well-known practices of reading and discovered that, it, you know, it was hard. It was hard and well-nigh impossible to keep the mind on a track. And where that's the case, it's not just the reading of, you know, 
long Russian novels at stake. It is, you can say those novels are sort of an emblem or a, you know, representation of inwardness itself. It's not commensurate with what we do all day to get to what had formerly, at least I think, been in more ready reach, which is contemplative access to oneself and to a kind of thinking that is not um, instrumental in the world, but is for itself. Contemplation of the fact of uh, one's life, what it is, where it's going, and, uh, and all that. So I'm pretty fixated on the impossibility that the two can be found in any way to coexist. Um, the two being, of course, uh, the habitual thing that we're all plugged into now and that other state of mind that I've sort of been talking about. Rob, could I just amplify that just a little? Do. Part of this is a little funny because Rob has not read the last letter in my book. <laughs> and I told him that was my favorite. And the reason why I bring it up now is, Finn, that's the the whole theme that I ultimately came to at the end of my work, even though you and I come at this from both overlapping perspectives and also very different perspectives, the end of my thinking, if you will, was very similar. And I returned to Aristotle's version of what are the three lives of the good society as the analog to the three lives of the good reader. And the first life is the life of productivity and acquisition of knowledge and information, etc. And the second life that's important to a good society is when it can have this leisure of entertainment, but the basis of culture of Greek was slightly different from our sense of leisure, but, but still it was was this first life productivity, second life leisure entertainment, but the third life is the contemplative life. And that was essential to the good society. And for my, if you will, summing up all that's important in the act of reading, those three lives are absolutely similarly important. And though we have and are awash in information, in productivity, and entertainment. The 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 uh, attrition of the contemplative life within the reader is, I think, the greatest threat to preserving deep reading itself in 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 our culture. Yeah, let me just also just jump in for a second. Um, where that inwardness is lost or gone, I think what arrives is a kind of uneasy sense about being in the world, a very Rilkean uh, notion. The outlet now has become sort of the search for the cure. It's therapy. Therapy is where so many people go in order to almost be forced that side of themselves. You know, the therapist is the skilled individual who knows how to begin to pry pry them into their own experience and get them reflectively to live with it and uh yeah i just wanted to mention that sort of notion yeah i i completely agree with you i think there are all kinds of 
people who are finding solutions, if you will, but I'm not sure that they are satisfying. What is so, if you will, economical is that the book provides the most immediate antidote because it allows immediate access. You don't need another. Uh, that's another Proustian quote, you know, the, the, the miracle of communication that can happen in solitude with, with the book. I understand what you're saying. And uh, I also would actually say that this whole concept of soul we can have a secular concept, we can have a spiritual concept, or we can have something that is somewhere in between the two in which we do not necessarily have to have an answer to whether or not it exists, but the very doubt or the very search for it, secular or spiritual or both, is itself um, a part of that inward in, uh, interiority that we possess the capacity for, but are, are limping along and ignoring it, or too distracted, or too thinking we are too busy for it. So that, that experience of being lost in a book that you've both referred to is something that many of us cherish, and you've both used this beautiful term of deep reading. And Sven, in, in the Gutenberg Elegies, you described it as the slow and meditative possession of a book. We don't just read the words, we dream our lives in their vicinity, which I love. Why is that state so precious? And more importantly, how are both of you still able to do it and if so how 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 do you how do you protect and ring fence and uh nurture that capacity to still be able to do that uh, sven well that's a really good question because it's not for me a given that i now read as i read 20 or 25 years ago i look back sometimes on my younger years with a kind of disbelief because I can remember, you know, sitting for a whole afternoon and, you know, churning through 150 pages of a novel. And that just was the thing as normal. That seems like kind of Mount Everest right now. The COVID year has been really tough vis-a-vis -vis reading um, because it has created the sort of subliminal ongoing agitation politically, culture-wide, every single way. We moved from uh, Arlington, Massachusetts, out to quiet, bucolic Amherst uh, a month ago. And one of the things that's happened is it suddenly got very quiet. I began to find that I was spending longer and longer times with uh, whatever print vehicle I picked up. I felt it coming back. Um, I still have my fingers crossed. It's not that I wasn't reading before, but so much of my reading was reading involved around editing and, uh, you know, before that for years, student papers and so on, which while it is reading, it's, it's not self-centered reading. And I use that term uh, not in a negative way. It's sort of reading towards some other end, whereas the kind of reading I live for and hope to bliss myself out on for years to come is living in reflective, thoughtful, challenged inner life within the presence of a mind or a sensibility that 
not only um, meets or, you know, that I have a meeting of the mind, but that accelerates me just a little bit, you know, the focus and intensity of a particular writer ups the game. As I get older and look for more and more things to read, I have to keep looking higher on the shelves in a sense. It's just not the same to me to go back to some novel that I loved in my 30s or 40s. So that's kind of directing my reading in all sorts of complicated ways, but long-winded, but I'll stop here. Thanks. Thank you. Marianne, how do you sustain that that capacity? Well, Sven, I, I feel sometimes occasionally in life, there's like a male twin somewhere. <laughs> so I'm just announcing to the world, you're my imagined male twin. <laughs> I wish I were in Amherst so badly instead of Los Angeles at times. But um, I'm more seriously, I had a pretty, for me, epiphanous experience in the most negative way. I decided since I'm preaching to everyone on weekends, writing articles or whatever about how digital is changing the reading habits I thought I would examine my own single subject design study. As I said earlier, I pulled out the book that had challenged me in a very good way when I was in grad school. And it was uh, Herman Hesse's Glass Beep Game. And the experience very quickly was just awful. I could not believe that the pace was so slow the concepts so densely convoluted that the writing style itself, how I ever thought he deserved a Nobel Prize for literature at that point, I couldn't believe. I had all these negative feelings in my head, and I couldn't read the book, basically. And I was so horrified at the recognition of what I really was experiencing, which was the inability to enter. Well, regardless, I couldn't enter it. And it made me uh, decide to do an experiment on myself in which I, instead of just giving up, I decided to read 20 minutes a day. And the fact that it's called Reader Come Home is in a way a part of what happened. It took me two weeks to slow myself down to stop the word spotting, the browsing, the skimming, and the desire to be done. You know, instead of immersing and enjoying the, the absolute choice of words or concepts or not, I had just eliminated that and just get to the point kind of reading. And I realized I had become the very reader I was trying to, to change. And so it took two weeks to do that. And then it was as if I came home. And it was a, with a sigh because I realized it's not a, a permanent stage of, 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 of reading. You have to nurture that. And so I literally began a practice, which I call bookending my days. And, and it's probably not a surprise that I have a practice of meditation that's very important to me. And so I begin with a meditation 20 minutes, and then I absolutely read material that I think, Sven, you would call at the top of the shelf, books that are really challenging to me that 
usually their philosophy or theology or something that is very, that forces me inward, that forces me to stop. So I never read more than a few pages, but 20 minutes of that has been very, very helpful. And then the end of my day, um, whether it's after a film or dinner or whatever it is, a similar experience, whether it's 20 minutes or 40 minutes, one of the things that worries me is that what Sin just talked about, that hour and a half or 150-page immersion, I still haven't returned to that. I'm bookending my day so that I am preserving that the inward capacity. But the novel is so important to me. It always has. I have several degrees in English before I went to neuroscience. And the novel, Gish Jin, Marilyn Robinson, all of these people are desperately important to me to know are alive and well, whether it's the resistors of someone like Gish or Gilead and Holm and Lila and Jack. There are canaries. And I I don't want to feel like I'm losing that. But I that's my worry that I am losing that and I have to take that seriously. Marianne, in in your book, you wrote that the future of the human species can best sustain and pass on the highest forms of our collective intelligence, compassion and wisdom by nurturing and protecting the contemplative dimension of the reading brain, which I loved. I wonder what both of your thoughts might be on any link between what we see playing out in the world of 2021, the rise of conspiracy theories, fake news, polarisation and so on, and the decline of reading? Might the decline in critical thinking, uh, our ability to concentrate, our increased capacity to only skate across the world today uh, as we face huge existential crises, you know, how, how would reconnecting to reading help us to address those those overarching crises that we face, do you think? So I, I really want people, if, um, if possible, to look into the work of Adam Garfinkel, whom I've been in correspondence with. I've never met him. We've been in correspondence now for several years about the link between what I call deep reading or deep literacy and democracy. And he has written absolutely a brilliant essay, and he's written another one, that people should seriously consider that when you have a brain that is neglecting, or in my terms, short-circuiting critical analysis, you have um, a citizen who is more likely to believe the false news or fake news more likely to be vulnerable to conspiracy and demagoguery because they have skipped those aspects of reading that are essential for discerning truth. So one of the the, the aspects that I've thought a great deal about is what I call the digital chain hypothesis, in which how we read affects what we read. Because when we're reading like the skim browse type reading, we are consuming vast amounts of information. So paradoxically, we end up not with larger amounts of information, but we go to silos of information where what we have previously decided is the familiar, that which 
in essence, reinforces what we already thought. That's what we read most. It could be Fox News, MSNBC, whatever silo one is talking about. But there are real horrors to minds that are closed to alternative viewpoints, which to me is the mainstay of a, a healthy democracy, to be open to various viewpoints, but to do truth discernment within whatever viewpoint we're in, rather than the what is now happening, which is the quick short circuiting of those processes and just going to a silo of information that leaves us completely vulnerable and makes our democracy vulnerable. Thank you. Uh, Sven? Yeah, I just very recently for a, a panel, I've spent quite a lot of time reading the essays of Joseph Brodsky. And um, he spends a certain amount of time um, reflecting on his experience in a sort of in the Soviet state. And one of the things he says, which is, you know, in a way it's plain as day, but I think it's worth saying, is that when a uh, dictator, however we define that, wants to preserve control over his fiefdom or his nation, the first thing that goes is the access to uh, free-thinking literature. It's all proscribed. And what that does, and this is part of Brodsky's point, is just it opens the mind to propaganda. There is no baffle against it the propaganda becomes the uh the business of the day and i think you know we certainly saw more than glimmers of that in the last four years the whole disinformation and fake news we need a standard in ourselves to judge by to judge accuracy truthfulness and the sound of what's truthful and if you don't read and if you don't spend time with books and indulge in that kind of thinking, it's very hard to make those discriminations. Your credulity level goes way up. And I think reading pushes you in the opposite direction by virtue of the attentiveness it requires and the fact, especially if reading literature as opposed to, you know, other kinds. Um, the inevitable fostering of empathy by virtue of making you as a, a reader become a participant in other minds, other lives, and to internalize the values that other people might have. And once you have that, it's very hard to have someone sell you absolutely on something which is, you know, patently false or... Uh, you know, manipulative or exaggerated. So, yeah, I think books have that, in my view, you know, extremely important role. There's a beautiful interview between former President Barack Obama and Marilyn Robinson, whom he considered like an ambassador of empathy. And he was saying that it was the novel that helped him really understand others, take on the perspective of others, and that, that life was not black and white, but full of gray and nuance, and that the novel was helping him understand that much more than all the other things that, that he did in his life or had learned in his life. To which Marilyn Robinson said, 
the trend towards seeing others as sinister others is the greatest threat to our democracy. Mm. Absolutely. Well, yeah. well, thank you both so much. I, it's, uh, extraordinarily, I, I only got to ask you three questions and I had 10 and you've answered all the other seven in the conversation that we had. So thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for a very long time. And I really deeply appreciate your time today. Thank you both so much for joining me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my mind has been flexed and opened just by virtue of conversation about reading, never mind reading itself. Oh, I, I, I think that this was um, a great gift to be able to be with you, Rob, and uh, to finally meet across all time and space, Sven Burkert's whose work has has meant so much to so many of us, but very much so to me. And um, sometimes rereading, it's like being twice blessed. And to have had this occasion to reread the Gutenberg Elegy, Sven, was um, your special gift to me. And thank you, Rob, for, for arranging this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Right, I'm off to pull up a big armchair and lose myself in an Angela Carter novel. My thanks to Marianne and to Sven. Thanks to you for listening and for your love and support of this podcast and to Ben Adicott for his production and theme music. This has been From What If to What Next, Power to the Imagination. See you next time. Mm-hmm.